0: You are listening to the Local Hearted Podcast, episode number 14, with oil painter Joseph Pearson.
1: Welcome to the Local Hearted Podcast. I'm Meredith Adler, and I am your host. Join me as we get to know the people who create the wide variety of art in Asheville and in the mountain counties of Western North Carolina. We'll also talk with some of the people who create opportunities for our local artists and help them shine.
0: Hi, I'm Kevin, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Local Hearted Podcast. Meredith asked me to stand in for her today to record this intro because she has a cold and didn't want to delay releasing the show. Meredith's guest today is Joseph Pearson, an oil painter working in the River Arts District of Asheville at Pink Dog Creative. Meredith met Joseph during the fall 2016 River Arts District Studio stroll and spoke with him about his work. She was impressed that he uses his work to address social issues, specifically the importance to Joseph that adults provide proper guidance to children. Meredith invited Joseph to be on the show in the spring, and hadn't planned to record any more episodes until then. However, the same day Meredith met Joseph, she also happened to meet a young man at a local health food store, who was absolutely despondent over the state of our society. He was despondent and inconsolable. Meredith could not shake the connection of meeting both Joseph and this upset young man on the same day, so she asked Joseph to be interviewed sooner than later. Meredith is very appreciative that Joseph said yes, and she's happy to present this interview to you today. As a bonus... Because Joseph has been awarded many artist grants, he generously offers here his advice on how to find and apply for grants towards the end of the interview. Without further ado, here is Joseph Pearson.
1: So Joseph, thank you so much for joining me on the Local Hearted podcast today.
0: Uh, Thank you, Meredith. It is
2: my honor. I thank you for inviting me to be part of it.
1: Thank you. It is my pleasure to have you here and here. We're actually in Joseph's studio. We are in the River Arts District and I will have you give the details about where your studio is.
2: We're here in the River Arts District at the Pink Dog Studios.
1: Yes, and um, I can describe your work but I always prefer if the artists would describe their own work and what they're doing so would you be willing to talk about that? Sure.
2: I am by training and inclination a figurative painter. The reason for the figure is because, well, one, the figure is the most complex and challenging form in nature, and because as humans, we naturally have that connection. I find the, in the exercise of the figure, my work tends to lean towards social-political concerns throughout the history of Western art. The figure has been used to represent certain ideas, philosophies, uh, points of view with the social, political. And again, because we are human and we have that connection, I tend to connect the human to certain issues that strike me as interesting in society, whether it be emotional or psychological and whether it's a personal or a vicarious experience. It started at about, I don't know, four or five years old. I remember observing in an old series and robot catalog, fashion illustrations, and I was fascinated by the idea that someone could use line and shapes and values to actually make a human figure for some reason that just kind of knocked me over. And because I was so taken with that, I started copying these drawings at an early age so I could learn to do that myself. And being extremely shy up until at least, I don't know, 18 to 20 years old, drawing was a chief means of my way of expressing my deepest, most personal concerns. It is said that one picture is worth a thousand words. Well, I could, what I couldn't say, I could draw. Everybody around the world relates to the arts, whether it's visual, whether it's music, whether it's poetry, whether it's dance, everybody can relate on that human level, can communicate through the arts. So, from an early age, I have seen art as a means of. Communication. Even today, it is still a form of communication with me. Art for art's sake, all art is important in any form, no matter who does it, no matter what level is important. But art for art's sake for me (laughs) is like talking to hear myself talking. I can paint whatever. It doesn't matter because of the training but unless I'm saying something that has meaning and substance to me on a personal level, then i'm I'm talking to hear myself talking. If I'm going to invest the time and energy and the materials and cost of materials to produce a painting that's going to take me uh, up to a couple of weeks or longer, it makes sense to me to invest that time and resources in saying something that I feel it certainly has uh, substance and emotional, psychological meaning and preferably some social, political connection for myself. And hopefully those of like mind will connect with that, even if they don't fully understand what I'm trying to say. And it's not important. That they do, I want everybody to bring their own perspective to the work. What I present out here is just my opinion. It's just my perception, my interpretation of my perceptions of what I'm sensing that's going on in in the world and in society. And hopefully I present it in such a way as to at least draw attention and interest to a point where it may folks stop and think for a second at least, about what's going on in our immediate environment. We, my wife and I, every now and then look at these, I think it's a Netflix series that goes back to the 60s and 70s and all that was going on during that that time frame. And I look at this and I'm like, wow, this was going on then? I mean, there was a lot going on all over the country, but because I was so wrapped up in my own little part of what was going on, I didn't see the big picture. So what I'm doing in my work is causing folks to stop for a second and just freeze frame a little bit of what is going on out of everything that is going on in the world. And hopefully, depending on the social political statement that I'm trying to make, it will cause folks to act to do whatever they can to affect or enact whatever positive changes that they feel that they can make to make society better.
1: Thank you very much. That was an awesome explanation. And so you're saying you started really young, being very interested in the figure. Yes. And that has carried over to today to where... You have the ability to paint whatever you want, but you have chosen to spend the majority of your painting time painting things that are meaningful to you about the things you see in the world that are important and that you want to capture and share. Is that correct?
2: That is correct. That was kind of a long answer to a short question, but (laughs) yes, that is correct.
1: Okay, thank you. So let's dive in and... um, Let's talk about some of these works and what they mean to you and your inspirations.
2: Well, looking around the room, the figure of this little girl holding a flag, makes your flag actually out of cardboard. The writing on it says, we'll work for food. This idea came about several years ago. Again, I draw inspiration from what I perceive is going on in society and that uh, really attaches to me psychologically and emotionally. And I read or heard a statistic that say that here in America, richest country in the world, most powerful country in the world, we tell ourselves that in America, four out of five, no, One out of four or one out of every five children here in America go to bed hungry in America. That just kind of knocked me over. So I heard that and I know a lot of other folks here, too, and I'm sure there are folks who are doing things about it. There are organizations who are doing things about it. But. How can I add my two cents worth to this? What contribution can I make through what I do, which is making art? So. I took this little girl, and I think she was a relative from way back. And outside my studio in New Orleans was this building that was going to be torn down. And for months, I looked at this shattered, uh, what are these, awnings? This just hanging there on the brink of uh, falling down at any moment. I kept looking at that. And I like the abstract pattern that the shadows created. And I wanted to do something with it. And going through my photo source materials, I found this little girl that I photographed i would taken many years before. And started putting the two together. This crumbling awning represents, I guess for lack of a better word, a negative attitude. Towards the situation of one out of four or one out of five children here in America going to bed hungry. So I took this little girl. And as you drive down the streets here in Asheville, as in New Orleans, you find folks on the side of the road with signs will work for food. Adults will work for food. These. These are grown folks that. That's a whole nother perspective. But we're talking about a child. So I figured by having this child with the sign saying we'll work for food. Would make a strong impact in terms of focusing attention on hunger here in America, especially not 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 just kids, but especially as relates to kids. And I call it behind the smile. Because she has to put on this brave face. She's starving. She's going to bed hungry tonight. But she's out here in order to encourage folks to put a little something in her bucket or hand or whatever. She has to put a smile on her face. And that's painful.
1: Yeah, it is a very powerful painting. That was one of the ones that really struck me when I was looking at your website and I wondered the story behind it. And, you know, in some ways I'm relieved to hear that isn't a true scene that you saw, that it, you know, came from your heart. But, you know, to hear your words, to hear you talk about why you did that the way you did, you're painting your version of the reality of these children. And uh, I would just encourage everyone to go to your website and take a look at it. And children do seem to figure somewhat prominently in your work. I wonder if you would talk about that.
2: Well, since I was a kid, I've always loved kids. And I see children as what they are, our future. Regardless of what is going on in the world, we old heads, as my dad used to say, are passing on, and the children are coming up. And as with the case in my upbringing, the older folks took it upon themselves to offer to us the benefit of their knowledge and experience and having lived for so many years to prepare us. To be responsible adults, you know, certain do's and don'ts, you know, your manners and so forth and so on, just how to conduct yourself in a civil society. Well, I see it as our responsibility. And back in the day, back in the day, also, any adult had the unwritten authority to chastise a child, and, you know, not physically. You know, uh, punish a child, but they had the right to pull that child aside and say, look, (laughs) you know what you're doing is not right. They could do that today. You probably might think twice before doing that. So I see it as our adult responsibilities today to do the same thing with these children, to give them the benefit of our experiences, especially in today's world. Partly due to social media and because the world has shrunk so much, kids are bombarded with so many distractions, many of which are not healthy. So it is incumbent upon us as adults to train these young folks in the way that they should go in the best that we can. So, yes, uh, children are very important to me.
1: And it appears that a number of your paintings depict adults caring for children.
2: Yes. Someone said, you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Teach him to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Thinking about that, and especially as an artist, but everybody thinking pictures. I know folks may not realize that, but if folk think about it, <laughs> Folks will realize that they're thinking, they're seeing pictures in their minds. But what we do as artists is tend to freeze frame that picture. So when I heard that phrase, give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach him to fish, feed him for a lifetime, picture come to mind. Again, we're talking about adults training kids. So the picture that came to mind is this father figure with father and Two young boys. These are my neighbors. They, they were avid fishermen. So when I had the idea and I'm thinking, hmm, who could I get to help me out with this? I, I could hire models and you know, position them and so forth and so on. But then I'm thinking, here's my neighbor. They're fishing a couple of times a week. So I presented the idea to him and I had him. His son and his son's friend, you know, just kind of stand outside of his house and, you know, for my primary photo reference and everything else in the background is made up to enhance that. But it's the idea with him with the fishing pole and the Lake Pontchartrain, New Orleans, in the background to speak to the idea of fishing. But it is not about fishing. It is about this. Adult teaching these young boys, at the time, seven, eight, nine-year-olds, how to navigate the uh, social system in society.
1: Thank you. And I am curious if you have any stories of how people have been impacted by seeing
2: your work. I'm told that... Some folks have pride. I <laughs> will give you a couple, of, a couple of examples. The young you know, piece I was just talking about, teach them to fish, and I used the same father and son in another piece, the guitar lesson, to speak to the same idea, you know, the idea of a father passing on, you know, information to a, to a child. But in some of my portraiture work that I've done for folks especially folks who have transitioned, then I have gotten comment that once they presented the drawing to the person, you know, Mm -hmm. that the person cried. I had a painting, a large painting called Scales of Unequal Justice. That painting represented, and to give a brief description of it, it's a large piece, four by five of a figure on a cross, makeshift cross. She's partially draped. It's the, the the figure is positioned to represent the Christ on the cross and the cross itself represents a form of persecution. And in one hand, she has a hammer representing labor. In the other hand, she has 80 percent of a dollar bill. And in the background is an abstracted American flag and two dimes representing, you know, 20 cents. The idea is that this is intended to speak to racial, economic and gender bias in America. And it crosses a uh, discrimination as a form of persecution. Now, lady come in and I was telling her this story. And I had my back turned to her. And when I turned around, she was crying. And I'm like, okay, what the heck did I say? I mean, it's the same story that I, I give everybody who walks in here. And she didn't say much. So they left and several days later, I got an email from them saying how moved they were you know, about the piece. And so that piece kind of resonated with her you know, on that emotional level.
1: I guess anytime one of your pieces inspires that kind of reaction, you might know you're on the right track.
2: Absolutely. Because I did this piece several years ago and I did it large deliberately to, for the impact that it would have, but it was a personal piece. I didn't expect many folks to connect to it or relate to it. And a lot of folks who walked into my studio in New Orleans would kind of see it and pass by it. They might show an inkling of curiosity, but not enough to get into it. So when this lady came in and gave me this reaction, it was like it was emotional for me, too, because, as I said earlier, you know. uh the work has deep psychological and emotional meaning to me. Otherwise, I'm talking to hear myself talking. So when someone comes in, if, if it's just one person who comes in and gets it, that means a lot. And that sometimes causes me to cry.
1: <laughs> to know that somebody got you, got it, and had an impact, and that uh, you were talking to somebody else, not just yourself.
2: Exactly, I realize that we live in a world where we live in an, in an entertainment society. Sports dominate, you know. Music videos, movies—it's all entertainment—and we fill a lot of our time with entertainment. Folks spend a lot of time uh, tweeting, and facebooking, and whatever else that folks are doing that I don't do. And all of that's important. But there is a lot of serious issues going on in society. And I don't expect folks to bombard themselves with, you know, serious stuff all the time. It'll drive you crazy. What I'm trying to do and what I do is just take a little piece of that and cause folks to pause for a minute out of their busy schedule and add to their busy repertoire this little bit of serious attention to a serious matter and see what difference we can make. Because I think we're all here to make a difference. You know, we could go through life all happy and full of partying and come to the end of, a, I don't know, 65, 50, 70, 80, 90 years. And then the question in my mind would be, hmm, what have I done to make a positive impact on somebody else's life? What am I leaving behind? What am I leaving behind? What kind of contribution have I made? Hopefully, I'm doing that not only visually through my art, but just in the way that I interact with folks on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, it sounds like. Your art is a reflection of your life and how you are with people. Well, that brings me to a point or a question. I'm not sure how I'm going to put this, but that painting you were talking about behind the smile. uh, We're talking about the painting of the young girl holding the flag that says we'll work for food. Certainly a heartbreaking scene. However, you have painted it I want to ask you about your choice of colors because you have made a heartbreaking scene so strikingly beautiful. I wonder if you would talk about, and it's not just that painting. I mean, you have quite the use of color, so I wonder if you would talk about that.
2: Wisdom. Training, education is like medicine. Nobody likes to take medicine. (laughs) even though it's good for us we do not like to take medicine so what uh, medical product producing companies would do is make medicine more palatable they will put a nice color on it they will put a nice package on it to make it look good and you think oh okay this can't be so bad well when it comes to making art aesthetics is extremely important this same piece could be painted in a much more I guess emotionally realistically devastating way to really talk about the impact of this but then it's going to turn a lot of folks off because that's painful but by employing the principles of painting and creating an aesthetically pleasing work of art first off to make this statement, then it tends to draw folks in. They see the colors, they are attracted to the design. Now, okay, what's he saying here? I got him in. Now, let's have the conversation. Oh, this little girl, what is that on that little girl's sign? We'll work for food, well, what does that mean? So now dialogue has been started and that started with the aesthetics the colors and the composition to draw folks in
1: i see so you could have painted a very difficult subject with somber colors that would have been in keeping with your subject but instead you chose to draw us in with a beautiful painting so that maybe perhaps more people would be drawn in And more people will receive your message that way.
2: Absolutely. Correct. And then, you know, I'm thinking as a professional artist, commercialism is important. Someone, even though I'm making a statement about a serious issue in society, I want someone to buy this. And if they buy this, they're going to hang this on their wall. If they hang it on their wall, this is what they have to look at every day. I do not want a depressing scene in somebody's, not that not, not one that I made, in someone's face every day. I want them to see this, recognize the seriousness of the issue, but at the same time, get some pleasure out of the aesthetics that is a good painting to start with.
1: Yeah, I could see that. And I, again, encourage people, check out this painting. The colors are really, really striking. I don't know if I've ever seen a painting with colors quite like that. Probably my favorite color. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I'm wondering about other paintings I see in here and your use of color. I'm looking at the Grooming the Future, and I wonder if you would talk about that painting and if there's some significance to the colors.
2: (laughs) Well... And, of course, folks will see this when they go to the website. And uh, behind the smile, the piece we were just talking about, there's a lot of purple mauve, as some folks would call it. Well, muted purples in the piece. Purple just happened to be my favorite color. And because it is, it kind of subconsciously, you know, sneak into a lot of my work. This piece, Grooming the Future. Again, we're going back to talking about adults training young folks and I guess I tend to dwell on that so much because it's what I grew up with you know old folks the old heads as my dad would call them just they took it upon themselves to give us uh, life enhancing advice whether we wanted it or not Mm -hmm. they gave it to us grooming the future traditionally the barbershop and the beauty parlor in most communities is, when, is where information is disseminated. You go to the barbershop and you get the the 411 on what's going on in the community. You know, the gossip. Child, you know that, that boy's back in jail. I told him he, he, he should have washed himself and, well, you know, that kind of stuff. Well... Grooming the future here, and at the time that if you notice, there's graffiti in the background. I'm talking about an older generation, again passing on life skills to a younger generation. I used the barbershop connection as an intro, as a as a point of departure to draw folks in. It was a barbershop? Everybody can relate to that. Barbershop beauty parlor, okay. So what? But as they get in closer and take a look at what's going on and hence the title grooming the future, he's not just cutting this kid's hair. He's grooming this young man for a responsible adulthood. I incorporated in this piece a graffiti scene. This graffiti is a piece that I saw on a wall somewhere probably in, in New Orleans it shows a small child holding on to a couple of fingers of an adult male that idea speaks to the same thing as the barbershop piece here is a, an adult male guiding leading protecting this young child as it navigates you know, life's uh, treacherous courses and again, the purple shows up. Purple? purple is also the color of royalty. So I'm hoping to say that this is, <laughs> this is important.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe I was off, but I, I just want to show you what I see when I look at it. When I look at that piece, besides the emotional impact of what you talked about is going on, to me, I know they're not the only colors, but... I'm seeing red, white, and blue. And I wondered if that was
2: purposeful. Hadn't thought about it. I, When I spoke to my friends, again, this is the father-son piece. This is not the father here in the, in the barber piece, that is his son. I told him what I was thinking. And to ask if he would send me, you know, photo references, you know, of his sons, that I might do this piece. And he sent this piece, and it has happened to include these colors. And I kind of raised them up a little bit, you know, kind of toned them down where they needed to be toned down and enhanced colors where they needed to be enhanced a little bit in order to, you know, balance the composition and make it interesting. But again, I like that you saw something else in that, because the work is not one dimensional. Mm-hmm. You know, this is just my perspective at this time. Now, if I were to do this again, I might have a whole different idea in mind and try to represent. I might use the same people, the same subject, but then I would be representing a different idea. So. Anytime somebody comes in and look at the work and see it from a whole different perspective, that just feeds my creative imagination. And I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, you never know what someone will read into your work, do you? And that makes me feel validated what you said, that you see my response to your painting as valid.
2: So thank you. That's an interesting point too. In the art world at large from what I have read and observed. We're talking about your major arts organization, big time galleries and auction houses, etc. The tendency is to make art elitist that only certain folks are qualified to understand or relate to it. That's total garbage. Art is accessible to anybody and everybody with a mind, an open mind. And the fact that folks come into the studio and see something different in the work than what I originally started with is, I think, the way it should be. Because that means I'm connecting with them. I'm connecting with them from where they are and not trying to bring them to where I am. And it's just a connection. They don't have to fully understand my point of view. They don't have to fully embrace the point of view. But if they see something in it that they connect to, and can take that with them, then I've done my work.
1: Okay, so let me just say we took a little break. And I told Joseph, I thought he was doing a great job of talking about his work. And he is talking to me off the record, and I'm going to put him back on the record. We were talking about how it is when people come into his studio and talk to him about his work so i'm going to hand him the mic back and take it away
2: <laughs> okay let me try, try to remember what i was saying <laughs> yeah a different perspective it's of course being a working artist with the studio open to the public all day every day what well, six days a week i have folks coming in and out and some folks come in and say nothing. Some folks come in and ask a few questions and for the large part it's a it's perfunctory, I understand it's a courtesy and I return the courtesy you know with a pleasant response to their concerns. It is rare when someone comes into the studio and asks questions and really want to know they're not just asking. OK, well, I have a, a minute while I wait for someone to get the coffee or to go to the restaurant or whatever or to catch up with me. They're asking because they really want to know. And when I find that, because the work means so much to me on a personal level, then I don't mind stopping and taking time to talk to folks about it. And it really excites me when young folks come in. I've had little 10, 12 years come in. They, they'll just take a serious look at the work and ask some insightful questions. And I get high school and college kids come in and really want to know. And we might spend 15 or 20 minutes, you know, my responding to their questions because they really want to know. And I can tell they really want to know because they take the time about it. They look at the work and the questions they ask shows that they have thought about the work. And because of that, then I don't mind responding to them. And it means a lot to me that they have taken the time to look beyond the surface. I've had so many times in different studios throughout the years, folks walk into the studio and they just, just, just look. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's pretty those are fighting words for me <laughs> those are insulting words to me that's nice that's pretty I don't make pretty pictures aesthetically pleasing yes pretty pictures no because if you look at the content of these pictures there's nothing pretty about this little girl with the sign saying we'll work for food this piece in the future this is a serious issue we're talking about our young people teach them to fish we're talking about our young people, our future. This is serious. Again, as a professional artist, it's my duty to make the work aesthetically pleasing, but they're not pretty in a way that, say, uh, a group of flowers, you know, might be pretty or uh, a bowl of fruit, you know, might be pretty. Those are pretty pictures. And in some cases they have their, you know, political connections depending on what the artist is trying to say, but I don't do pretty pictures.
1: I wonder too, you were talking about the children's reaction to your work. I think a lot of adults don't feel like they know how to talk about art with an artist. I wonder if that's part of it. Children are more uninhibited. And so maybe their reactions, they're more willing possibly to share them with you. I wonder if that's part of it. What do you think about that?
2: I think that's part of it. I think children, too, respond more readily to a little prodding because I will ask them, you know, what do you think of this? And in most cases, kids don't hesitate to tell you what they think about something. And if I see that they're interested in particular, then I will ask them and the conversation starts rolling and especially when I get a young person who comes in who is interested in art themselves I mean have a serious interest that really excites me the question they ask they might ask me about my paint they might ask me how do I mix this color on they might ask me some technical question regarding the work and we might talk about drawing and how important drawing is and they might talk about their drawings and I had a lady come in with a teenage son who was introverted. In he draws all the time. She tells me, and he, he was like myself, very shy, had his ambitions, but reluctant to share that with some folks. Because I found, especially earlier years, eh, most folks didn't care. Oh, you're an artist. So what? Mm-hmm. Get a job. <laughs> okay. But I was serious and when this young man came in and his mother did most of the talking and she told me his story and we started talking to him about his art and his interest in art school and so forth and so on. It reminded me of an experience that I had junior in college. Same attitude. We had a visiting professor come and from White Plains, New York. He was an illustrator and gave a presentation. And at the time, I was thinking about going to art school. I had no idea where an art school was in the country. So at the end of his presentation, I pulled this man aside. His name was Charles Jefferson. And told him, as I said to this young man, about my interest in going to art school. He suggested three schools. The Slade School of Drawing in London, the Art Institute of Chicago, the Art Student League of New York. Well. I'm a small-town boy in a small town in South Mississippi. I wasn't about to go to London. That was out of the question. Too big. Mm -hmm. Chicago was cost prohibitive, so I ended up going to the Art Students League in New York by default, and fortunately I was given a scholarship to go there. So when I heard this young man's story, I tried to be to him what Mr. Jefferson was to me. So I suggested to him... You know, several schools. I suggested to him to look for scholarships, you know, that they're out there, you know, look look for grants. They're available because I sensed that he was serious about his art, but didn't know how to go about it. And, you know, his mother's doing the best she can. And fortunately, she was open to, you know, my suggestions and uh, offering that to him. So, yes, I get students who young people who come through like that, who are serious And it means a lot to me to be able to share with them my experiences, again, echoing these pieces, teaching the fish and grooming the future and the talk.
1: Thank you. You're really passing it on when you get a chance, it sounds like.
2: Passing it on. That's the key words. Passing it on. And I think that's our responsibility. This is related (laughs) <laughs> in, in terms of uh, my work being connected to whatever's going on in, in society. Many years ago, they're on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. The street games were beginning to infiltrate the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And they were targeting kids, I don't know, 12, 14 years old, because you know these kids could... Somehow best navigate this legal system. So I said to the members of a fraternity group that I was part of at the time, why don't we, since we're professional men, take young men, 8, 10, 12 years old, 10. Let's go beneath that line. If the gangs are targeting these kids at 13 or 14, let's get to 12, mm-hmm. 10. Let's take these young kids and start grooming them differently. Well, I'm an artist. I'll take whatever child is interested in art and share what I can with him. Here's a fellow who's a businessman. You know, you take these kids. I didn't get the full support of the organization behind that, but that kind of fell through. But the whole idea is that it it is our responsibilities as adults to train young folks, to take them under our wings and nurture them. And oftentimes, kids don't know what they want. <laughs> they don't know. They might have an interest in something. They, they don't know. It is up to us in observing the children to kind of see where they're headed and to push them a little bit to see if they are seriously interested about going in that direction and then just take them on our wings and feed them. I say feed them suggesting that when, when you feed, you take a bite at a time. <laughs> Give them a little bit of time because if I dumped all that it takes to make a painting on a child at one time, they'll run out of here screaming. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> Well she didn't run away screaming, but she did stop talking to me. I I'm thinking about a cousin, very talented young lady. <laughs> I met her and oh she was all excited about the arts and she does good work. She's excited about the arts and you know, wanted my advice and so forth. Well I started telling her. And because she was excited about it, I got excited about it. But I gave her too much information <laughs> too soon. <laughs> I suggested some books that she read. I I suggested some artists that she look at, some DVDs that, you know, there's a lot of excellent instructional information out there now on DVDs. And that she constantly worked to improve her work. I mean, that's that's extremely important. I don't care what level you reach. There's always room for improvement. And I suggested, too, that she studied the business side, you know, of the arts. And again, I recommended a Couple other books. Well, I heard from her <laughs> about three or so weeks ago. She had a piece of work accepted on a, in some some show to tell me about it. But that had been years since our conversation. I dumped a whole platter of food on her instead of feeding her one spoonful at a time. <laughs>
1: But it sounds like you didn't entirely scare her off from the art world. You um, mentioned the talk, which is actually the piece I asked you about when I met you during the studio stroll. And uh, I wonder if you could describe that one. I know the symbolism relates to everything you've already talked about. I wonder if you would just mention that, because that is a different kind of work that you do.
2: There are those who say art imitates life. And I'm sure there's a lot of truth in that. But for me, art is life. Art is a reflection of my life, both my personal experiences and through vicarious experiences. And Even though the experience might be vicarious because we are all human, it still makes it my experience. This piece, The Talk... Again, it goes back to an older generation nurturing a younger generation. Many years ago, talking about giving back, I had opportunity to be involved with several community programs. I got involved. This is still the same subject. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm watching television, watching the news, and I saw this going on in the community. And I say, somebody ought to do something about that. And I watched the news. Somebody ought to do something about that. And I watched the news. Then I say, now, I, would, I would have done this. And then it finally hit me. Well, why don't you do something? So I got involved at the time I lived on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. I got involved with the uh, Harrison County Family Court. I was uh, like a big brother mentor. So I would take uh, these young men and just took them under my wing. You know, I take them to whatever they were interested in. They were interested in fishing. We go fishing. They were interested in sports. We go to some sports event. I even brought them to art exhibitions, to museums, just to kind of widen that horizon a little bit. And I learned instead of just, again, dumping information on these young folks, I listen to them and then give them the benefit of my advice. I learned this from my daughter when she was little. When she said, Daddy, you know what? I knew she was about to share something with me that was important to her four, five, six-year-old life. That provided a teachable moment. So when I was mentoring these young men, I learned to listen to them and kind of see where they were coming from. And then being older, nine times out of ten, I've had a similar experience. And I was able to share that with them to help nurture them. So this piece, The Talk. Is again about it's a big brother. It's a father figure. It's a it's a mentor. But he's and the fact he has his arm over this young man's shoulder, suggesting intimacy that he's really taken this kid in, really embraced this young man. And he's sharing with him the heads down, sharing with him some serious piece of information relative to this young man being able to navigate the social, legal, political systems of life.
1: And listening to you today, Joseph, I would think any of those young men who had the, or young boys who may be men now, who had the opportunity to have you as a mentor were truly gifted to have you in their life and care the way you did. I think that can make a big difference for a child to have somebody older care to that degree that you did
2: it made a difference to me of course my folks split when i was probably i don't know 12 or so 13 14 but the good news about that is the relationship i had with my daddy he because of his he was quiet he didn't talk much he didn't have to (laughs) <laughs> we felt each other I knew he loved me and I still think about some of his advice you know today and when I was in New York by myself 23 year old kid I had the privilege of because my father was just one such figure in my life this fellow his name was Eugene Smith he was a landlord and because I didn't know anybody in the city, you know, life would beat me down. And I'd come home in the evening. We'd end up sitting at the kitchen table in the apartment complex. And, you know, I start pouring my heart out to him. And he'd end up sharing with me some similar story that he'd lived. He's uh at the time he was seventy-something, I'm a 23-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. A lot of life experience between us. We ended up, in most cases, laughing because we realized that no matter what I was going through, somebody else had already been through it. And no matter what I was going through, there was light at the end of the tunnel. No matter what I was going through, somebody came along and said, you know what? You'll get through it. I made it through it. Millions of folks make it through it. It's rough right now, but you'll get through it too. And so having all of these men in my life to take me under their wing and guide me through this treacherous social system, I feel like it is my responsibility to do the same thing for, you know, as many young people as I possibly can. And fortunately, a couple of the young men that I remember from back in the day, one of them, Ended up, I heard he'd gotten married, had a family. Uh, There was a pair of twins I worked with. They were interested in horses. The last time I saw them, this was a lot of years ago, they were living in Georgia, and one was working a horse ranch or something. The point is, (laughs) they were headed down destructive paths, because, again, I'm talking about the gang members again to infiltrate the Mississippi Gulf Coast and all of that influence. But they ended up, at least at that point in their lives, leading a productive adult life. And, you know, it's tempting to pat yourself on the back and say, yeah, 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 right, I like this. But that's just our responsibility as adults. It's just what we're supposed to do. There's no special accolades for that. It's just doing what we're supposed to do as adults.
1: And I can see how good it makes you feel to see the results Okay. And one more thing about the piece, the talk, it's not an oil painting. I wonder if you would talk about that a little bit.
2: As an artist, it's practically, practically inedible that you want to branch out in terms of media and expression. Each media lends itself to each subject, lends itself to a different mode of expression. What I can say in an oil painting may not work as a print, where it maybe what I can say through mixed media wouldn't work. It would work, but not as effectively as just a painting. So by doing, making a linocut, cut, I could keep the point simple and direct. It's just strict black and white. You're not distracted by color. You're not distracted by unnecessary details say in their clothing or, you know, the body parts and whatever. It's just a direct approach to representing an intimate relationship between these two guys.
1: Thank you. And again, that is the piece that got our conversation started, which that happened during the studio stroll. And... That's The the answer you gave me about taking care of the children is what inspired me to invite you to have this conversation. And uh, I thank you for that. Now, I do want to say, on some level, right at this moment, I feel like I owe you maybe an apology. Because something you said earlier, when you were talking very... No, no, no. When you were talking very um, intently about not making just pretty pictures um i didn't really respond to that i brought it back to talking about the children and i wish i had said something to you about that 20 minutes ago or whenever that was because i could see i just want to validate and acknowledge that i could see how important that was to you that you want to do work that's meaningful
2: (laughs) well thank you absolutely you know I love painting. I like the feel of paint. I like the smell of paint. I know folks come in and the fumes, the materials, it can be overwhelming for some folks. But for me, I can come in here feeling down and out and tired or whatever. It invigorates me and energizes me. But going back to pretty pictures, I love aesthetically pleasing work. You know, I love art that is skillfully done, regardless of the subject matter. And that's fine for other artists. And everybody have their own interests and have their own subject matters that means a lot to them. And I'm sure every artist who uh, paints a still life, it means a lot to them. And I've seen some beautiful still lifes. But for me, because and of course, all of our work is influenced by earlier experiences. You know, I'm going back to being four or five years old and seeing these uh, fashion illustrations of people in a magazine. Well, that's still my experience today. I mean, that was my first impression. People, people are just extremely important to me. So no matter what somebody else is doing, people is, is, is my subject. And in representing people, I think it's only fair to do two things. One, be the best that I can be, technically speaking, and secondly, to use the figure to speak to the human condition. So in terms of Pretty pictures versus versus aesthetic. You know, any subject can be aesthetically well done. But because my subjects tend to deal with social political issues, they're not pretty in, in that sense. But I like to think that they are aesthetically pleasing and beautiful in that sense.
0: Yeah.
1: Thank you. So to round out the conversation, I wonder if we can talk a little bit more about your path as an artist. We kind of jumped right into your message, which to me was so important to cover, but there might be people out there who are curious about, we know you got your start looking at those magazines of people, and you have mentioned going to art school, and I wonder if you would say more about how it all happened for you and what you've been doing.
2: I would try to condense 30 years into <laughs> a couple of minutes. But since age four or five, I I've been int- I was, of course, interested in drawing. At the time, being a five or six-year-old, I had no idea what an artist was. I had never heard the word. So when I was in grade school, when teachers asked you what you want to do or be when you grow up, I said, I want to be a drawer. What? <laughs> I want to be a drawer. You mean an artist? No, 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 no. no. I want to be a, a drawer. I had no idea what an artist was. But there was no art programs in my high school. But I would spend as much time in the library as possible reading about art and artists as I could. And after high school, having an opportunity to go to college, I thought that the training that I got in college would be like the training I got in art school. Not so. We didn't even start taking an art course, I think, until your junior year. First couple of years of the liberal arts and so forth and so on. Well, that that was disappointing to me. I realized later on how important it was, but it was disappointing at the time. And it was during my junior year, of course, that I met Mr. Charles Jefferson, who told me about the various schools. So I decided that's what I'll do. Now, after college, to get money to go to school, I, of course, applied to teaching the public school system. I worked for a year, saved my money, off to New York. Anyway, my plan was to go to New York and do what I did in college work, work and go to school. While I was teaching in the school system, I shared with my students my plan. And they suggested I apply for a scholarship when I got to New York. And I brushed them off. I had. There was no way I was going to get a scholarship. But they were insistent. So I finally agreed when I get to New York. And I proceeded to follow my plan of work and go to school. That's what I've done through high school. It's what I've done through college. I can do this. When I had a model, Claudia was a name to suggest that I apply for a scholarship. And again, I hem and hauled, So she kept pushing, so I finally did the application. So about a year went by, and I hadn't heard anything, so I'm going about my business. I'm working and going to school. <laughs> going into the second year, the director of the school, Art Students League, Miss Rosina Floria, came to me And asked me why wasn't I on scholarship what can I say I don't know I you know done the application I hadn't heard anything she says well I think I saw your name a few days ago let me check a couple of days passed. she come back to me and says yes you've been awarded a scholarship so for the four out of five years that I trained at the Art Students League was a full scholarship and I went to school year-round if they were open I was in school after art school I had training but no experience, so after knocking on some doors there in New York, a fellow school guard I was working as a school guard suggested to me that I do what he did, join the military. Again, no, that doesn't quite compute. What does the two guys do with each other? But as I thought about it, the more it began to make sense. I could join the military, you know, it's a chance to, you know, save some money, plot a new course and blah, blah, blah. Well, I joined the military and because I had a college degree in professional art training, instead of going in as with no rank, I went in with three stripes. I went in as a PFC. And secondly, I went in as an illustrator. So for the three years that I was in the military, then I gained some some experience as a very technical illustration. Well, about a year or so prior to coming out of the military, I met another fellow uh, who was an illustrator, an artist. And again, I shared with him my dreams about being a professional artist. And he said, why don't you do what I do? Mm -hmm. Well, what is that? Well, I work for the government, pay the bills, and I pursue my art on the weekends. Oh, I'll do that. So I get out of the military. And to shorten this story, I end up working for the government, naval oceanographic group at the Stennis Space Center, South Mississippi. Worked as an illustrator for 20 years. And while I'm working as an illustrator there, I'm, of course, doing my art. But instead of doing that on the weekend, I did it in the morning before I went to work. I did it in the evening when I came home. And at the same time, I'm applying for uh, competitions and so forth to kind of build my resume. So after 20 years of working for the government, you know, I retired and started pursuing my art full time. And I retired in 1999. But during that time, I was working with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I was on the artist roster. I put together a workshop called DIF, D-I-F, Drawing is Fun and Mental. And the idea was to take this program into elementary schools, alternative schools, and women's shelters. And the idea was to have folks draw as a means of personal expression because I realized drawing is primal. We start out drawing. I say that based on a book I read many years ago written by a lady named Rhoda Kellogg. She and her co-worker spent 20 years studying kids all over the country, all over the world. And they discovered that if you place the drawing instrument and a piece of paper in front of a 18 month old baby, it will begin to express its little world through drawing and they noticed that there was similarity in terms of symbols between this 18-month-old and 12- and 13-year-old kids throughout the world. Drawing as universal. So I took that principle with diff and took it into these various systems to offer folks a means of self-expression to, especially in, in the women's center and the alternative schools, to have kind of... Mm, Offer them a personal outlet for personal expression without being hindered or bound by what somebody else expect. So did that while I was working for Stennis, retired in 1999 to pursue the art full time. And since then, I have been awarded a International grant through the Pollock Krasner Foundation twice, a national grant through the Artist Fellowship of New York, and many regional grants in Louisiana and Mississippi, and of course, gotten a few commissions along the way, mainly portrait commissions. One of which was the former mayor of Alexandria, Louisiana. He and his wife, we lived there for 3 years after running from hurricane Katrina and while I was there I had that the honor of painting them so it's been a pretty straight path and I'm expecting to continue and develop more so here in the Asheville, Carolina area
1: and what was your path to Asheville what brought you here and what have you been how long have you been here what have you been doing here
2: My wife was born here in Asheville, and about five years ago, she started talking about retiring and coming home. And a year and a half ago, we did just that. We bought a house just about a a mile from here. And during one of our trips here is where I met Randy Shaw, one half of the owners of The the Pink Dog, and talked about moving here and needing studio space. And fortunately, when we moved here, this particular space, you know, was available And since having been here, I've had a show here at the Pink Dog. Last year, we did a show called Perceptions, the Black Male Images of Dignity. It was designed to offset some of the negative press, you know, regarding black males at the time with all the shootings that was going on. So I've had that show and I've gotten a couple of pet portrait commissions. We have six cats. Uh, Asheville is an animal-friendly city. I am scheduled to show a recent body of work at Morris Hill University in January. So things are steadily progressing. But then I work at it.
1: And I want to mention that we are talking about January 2017. And will you mention when that show starts and how long it will hang?
2: The show opens, I believe, January 17th. Reception is January 18th, and we run through 2017. And we run through February the 10th, I think.
1: Thank you. And then one thing you mentioned that I think you might be the first artist that I've interviewed who mentioned is getting grants. And so... In case there's any artists listening who might be interested in that as an option, can you talk about what that is like, how to go about that, and what is the benefit? How does that work?
2: Before I retired, you know, even though I was working, you know, artists, (laughs) we need money to produce the work. And sales don't come as often as we like them to. So, but we still have to produce the work. And upon research, I realized there are organizations out there, grant-making organizations just for artists. And they come in different forms. There are some organizations just for photography and some for sculptors some for visual artists and so forth. So I started researching. And I, I was familiar at the time because I worked with the Mississippi Arts Commission about their annual fellowship. So I applied. I applied for about five years. <laughs> And got rejected five years. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. A couple of these years, the panel agreed to give me the award, but the Arts Commission heads denied it. So I had a meeting with them to find out why. <laughs> so wait a minute. If the panels agreed... Why am I being rejected? And I was told, well, we only give out nine grants a year, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, that's well and good. Why can't I be one of the nine? Well, we had a right to ask for uh, a copy of the panelist's decision, what they look for. Well, what I was missing in my applications was that my images weren't matching my verbiage. For example, I'm talking about, say, this behind the smile. I might talk about it, but then I might send an image of this one <laughs> because they said send 10 images. Well, I just sent 10 images. So that bail finally connected. Plus, it was a good learning experience because I learned how to refine the grant processes. And I learned several things. One, pay close attention to the mission statement. The mission statement tells you what the organization is looking for. Echo that back to them. Secondly, the deadline. You could have the finest grant in the world, but if you miss the deadline, that's it. <laughs> you missed the deadline. You don't they don't say, oh, I'm sorry. That's it. You missed it. And the third thing is to write, read, rewrite. Write, read, rewrite. Give yourself enough time to do this. Over a period of weeks, if you have weeks or months, if you have months, put it aside, come back and look at it, because your initial thoughts, you want to put those down first. You're going to constantly come back and refine those initial thoughts relative to the mission statement and what you're asking for. And once you're satisfied with that, then you submit it. I have been fortunate to receive nine, I don't know, maybe ten grants. Well, if nine, then the present grant that I've been awarded through the Asheville Area Arts Council and uh, other organizations makes about ten grants. And it's the same process. Mission statement, deadline, read, write, rewrite.
1: So it's kind of a way to be able to keep doing your work and not, have to a hundred percent depend on sales that can be inconsistent, come and go kind of thing. I think that's what you're saying.
2: Exactly, and another aspect of the grant process is credibility. If you're awarded a grant by, say, a major organizations like the Pollock Krasner Foundation or the Artist Fellowship in New York, it looks pretty good on your resume, and having this helps to open other doors. If an organization see that you were supported financially by a previous organization, then the impression is that your work must be good or this guy must be responsible. It, it It goes to credibility.
1: I see. Okay, thanks. And then does being awarded a grant, well, maybe they're all different, but in your case does it oblige you to do certain things or a certain body of work or to report back later to the granting organization um, or is it just a gift of money what does it require of the artist?
2: Uh, both one as with the Pollock Krasner Foundation grant it was pretty much a gift uh, it was we were given a certain amount of money the first grant was like $18,000 and the second was uh, after Katrina Uh, $5,000 to kind of, you know, help recoup materials and supplies and stuff that was lost. And there was uh, really no reporting process. With a project grant, on the other hand, you have to say that you're going to use this work to produce a certain body of work relative to so-and-so, so-and-so, and define that. And at the end of the project, then you have to show justification for that, You have to show work that was produced and how the money was spent as it was allocated.
1: Okay. And do you want to say more about the most recent grants you were awarded in Asheville?
2: I am president of a recent body of work relative to recycling and renewal. And I started this body of work as I looked at the interest in recycling here in the city of Asheville. And I began to look at recycling from a national and global perspective. In recycling, we actually uh, preserve energy and resources. And looking at that, I decided to apply for a grant to provide materials for me to produce the work and at the same time help pay promotional costs to help get the word out about the work and about recycling. In that I applied for a project grant through the Asheville Area Arts Council for which I was received notification recently that I had been awarded such grant. Yay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and this grant was made possible. is supported by the North Carolina Arts Council, which is a division of the Cultural Resources, a state agency funding local arts organizations in Buncombe, Madison, Mitchell and Yancey Counties as well as Avery Counties.
1: And we are very appreciative to that Arts Council for honoring you with this award, this grant. Thank you. Yes. Okay. So, I know, you're probably getting tired. Um,
2: there's how? There's another question once, once it's all <laughs> over. <so>.
1: Okay. <laughs> how would you recommend, then, if there are any artists listening that have never done the grant process and are interested in pursuing how what is the ground floor for even knowing where to look?
2: Fortunately, you have the internet. google Google grants for artists. You'll get any number of organizations that comes up. So you have to search diligently through these organizations and you're looking for. Organizations who look at what they fund. You know, some organizations and look at their time frame. Some grant periods are open, which means you can apply year-round. Some have closing deadlines. So you want to pay close attention to that. And you want to look at organizations that are funding whatever your particular style of art or subject matter might be. Now if you're a photographer, of course you don't want to apply to uh, a painters' uh, organization. And if you paint realistically, you don't want to apply to abstract etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So, when you Google grants for visual artists, just go through the process and of elimination, see what fit you can find for yourself.
1: Thank you, and I really appreciate all that you shared today. And I will have to digest it. There's been a lot. And I just want to make sure if there's anything we didn't cover that you would like to make sure that we talk about. Just to give you a chance if we missed anything that would round out the picture of you as an artist.
2: I think we pretty much covered my whole life. We started (laughs) at four or five years old and we come up today. So I, I think we created a full picture, and I thank you and appreciate the opportunity to share.
1: And I thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful experience, and you have been such a great sport. We have been actually using my backup system for recording, which has involved us literally passing a microphone back and forth between each other uh, anytime the other wanted to speak, because my... Go to recording setup wasn't working this morning, so I want to thank you for that. I know that changes how you have a conversation, so thank you for being a great sport and uh, wish you the best. And I'm looking forward to your show in January.
0: Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome.
0: Check out the show notes at localhearted.com/slash Joseph Pearson for links to his sites and examples of his work. And while you are there, if you want to make sure you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to the mailing list. Joseph's show at Mars Hill University runs from January 18th to February 10th, 2017, with an opening reception on January 18th from 6 to 8 p.m. The exhibit will be held in the Moore Fine Arts Building at 79 Cascade Street in Mars Hill. We hope some of you can make it out to see the work in person. Joseph's show is supported by the North Carolina Arts Council, a division of the Department of Cultural Resources, a state agency with funding from local arts councils in Buncombe, Madison, Mitchell, and Yancey counties, and with support from Avery County. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Local Hearted Podcast. The podcast's theme music, Learning to Fly, is courtesy of and copyrighted by Jamie Noter Thomas.